Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone involved in some way in public debates, from across political, theological and all other kinds of spectrums, and ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In this episode, I spoke to Bim Afalami, who has been Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden since 2017. Before he became an MP, he worked as a corporate lawyer in the city. We spoke about what he means by One Nation Conservatism, his Nigerian heritage giving him a sense of the importance of politics, and his sacred value of equality of opportunity. I hope you enjoy listening. Uh, I'm going to ask you the big meaty question that we challenge everyone with. But before I ask it, I want to say when you hear the word sacred, does it sit easily with you? Are you familiar with it? Or are you using a new part of your brain when considering what you hold sacred? Gosh, a new part of my brain. Um, so I'm very familiar with it. It's partly through background. My grandfather, grandfather. so my father's Nigerian, my mother's half English, half Nigerian, but my, um, was, my mother was born here and grew up here. But my father's father, in Nigeria was an Anglican vicar. He was an archdeacon and did various things in the church. And my grandmother was a missionary I, with him, you know, traveling all over the place. Uh, and though I, you know, my father, I don't think retained that in nearly the same way, but more broadly, there's a certain inheritance you have with theological language. I've always been interested in it. And, you know, I went to boarding school, very Anglican and I don't know if they still do now, but I'm not that old. I'm 34. But when I was at school, we went to church every single day, every single day. Uh, the only day, sorry, forgive me, was Saturday. We didn't go, but we went every other day. So, I mean, you, you, it's incredibly there formative, is just right? incred- you just, there's so much uh, that you take on board, even if you don't realize you're taking it on board as school. Yeah. Did most of it feel like it was just sort of washing over you at the time? Yes, because, you know, you're a teenage boy and it's something you have to do. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that uh, any more than anyone else. But, but I do think that just going back to the, the word sacred, it is a word that I think in the modern day, people are quite unlikely to use very often. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that is because the modern world is so uncomfortable with theological ideas and questions. Because in the modern world, in essence, things have become so binary. So you are either an atheist or you're a religious nutter, you know, whether that be Christian, Jewish, Islamic, whatever. So I don't think it's sort of denominational or or religion specific, but I do think that there's no such thing almost, at least in our common discourse, there's no such thing anymore as, you know, you are just somebody who has Christian values who goes to church or may not go to church, however frequently, but that those Christian values infuse the way you are and the way you, you think about the world, you don't often hear that mm. or, or see it, at least ostensibly. What you tend to have is people who are really religious and then people who do not do anything to do with religion. Mm. And I think that in the modern world, we've lost something without that sort of broad underpinning of, of, of that theological understanding. And obviously that comes out through language. And I say we've lost something because, I mean, that's, that's obviously that's expressing my own bias. Uh, and there'll be other people listening to this who say, no, you haven't lost anything. That's better for whatever reason. And that's obviously that's their view and that's fine. But my sense is because so much of our belief system in, 
expressed through our institutions, our legal system, the way we think about leadership, all comes from Christian values in this country, obviously, not necessarily across the world. So that, uh, that sort of lowering of understanding, I think, is starting to have an impact in terms of people's, whether it be mental health, whether it be people's feeling lack of rootedness, the difficulties we have with certain communities, the difficulties of societal cohesion is because there is a there just isn't as much understanding anymore of sacred values and those things which underpin the things we see around us every day. Mm, well, a former guest was Tom Holland, who's written a book called Dominion recently, which makes that case. You can tell I've read really his book. Yes, yeah, it's great. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. I don't have through. any new ideas. I generally just get them when I read books. Oh, me too. I think the best people do. Um, so it's one of the reasons that I ask people what they hold sacred because it's not commonly used. And I speak to people who are religious and non-religious and I say it doesn't have to be a religious thing. But what I'm trying to get at is that we have things that we hold sacred that drive us and that when we are in conflict in public or in disagreement or difference, often it's the, the things we hold sacred that are sparking off each other. But that's so implicit that we, you know, uh, we think it's about the particular issue in mind, but it really helps us to go a bit deeper and reflect that someone else might be holding something else precious and trying to act in an ethical way, but starting from a different point. So uh, the, the question is, when I asked, what are your sacred values or what do you hold sacred? What came to mind? I think for me, values, and it comes to actually how I think about politics and how I think about just conducting oneself, but values come out of what practically matters. So coming from, as I say, a background of people who effectively came from poor country, they're well-educated people came from a poor country in West Africa, came to Britain because they could make the most of themselves and their lives. And obviously knowing lots of relatives and family friends and various others who've done the same thing, whether it be Britain or the United States. I think one of the most sacred values I have is that all human beings have, you know, we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. We all want quite essentially fundamentally the same things. And the difference in opportunities that people have is so great that even living in a country like Britain, which as we know has huge riches and huge poverty, we, I'm not diminishing that, you almost underestimate how great those differences are because we're in one country, but still, you know, people still have to go to school, they get to decent education, they've got a free healthcare, all these things that we now take for granted. Across the world, those things are not true. So one of the most sacred values I have is that everybody has within them uh, things they can do and, and opportunity is the thing that is the scarce resource, not, not talent. And connected with that, it's always a slight, guilt probably isn't the right word, but full awareness that I've been so lucky in so many things. You know, I've, I've, I'm lucky that I have a, a positive, balanced personality. I'm lucky that I was, you know, I had a photographic memory and I could learn things very easily at school. I was lucky that I knew what I was interested in from a very young age. I was lucky that my parents sent me to, to posh schools and various other things. So I was lucky in so many ways. And so I have just got that acute awareness that when you have received that and that's been bestowed on you, you have some real obligation to try and make those things real for other people. And that's one of the things that drives me. But it's, it's odd because a huge part of me would just think, gosh, you know, why don't we just, why don't you just try and set up a business and make lots of money or something? But I just, I'm just not that interested in it. And I wish I was on some level. My, you know, it, it, politics is a rough and tough business. You know, but, but I'm just, and that's nothing against people who do that. I think we need lots of people to do that. But 
I'm to really, really, really commit to something and be really good at it. I think you need to be very passionate about it, and that's why people who love what they do don't really feel like they're working. Their family members feel like they're working, but they don't because of it. So, so really, that's a very long way of saying that um, the most sacred value is that. I have met so many people in different parts of the world, whether it be, I haven't, frankly, in my life been to Nigeria very much. I've really only been, I was only taken there twice. But whenever I've traveled or I always try and seek out people who are in a tough spot. And what you always find is that they have often greatness, brilliance within them. And you just think, oh my goodness, what a waste, you know, that that, that is not coming out. So that's really what underpins my whole politics. Mm. And just uh, tell us a little bit more about your childhood, particularly if there were any big ideas in the air. Were there kind of was were political ideas in the air or religious ideas beyond kind of what you received at school? Uh, I wouldn't say political ideas. I mean, if my parents listened to this, they would laugh. Uh, they, they they didn't. We were very interested in current affairs. I mean, my my father always had. I mean, we had every newspaper. He used to get the Economist and Time Magazine and Newsweek and the Spectator. I mean, everything. We used to read everything. I used to read it from when I was six, seven years old, I used to read everything. And so we were always talking about stuff. And my father's a doctor, my mum's a pharmacist. And so we talked a bit about health and the NHS, but not in any particularly party political way, definitely not. But there was an awareness that all these things mattered and politics matters. You know, anybody who has got any part of their family that's come from somewhere else, what they will all appreciate is that especially if it's come from a poorer place than Britain, is that politics really, really matters in most parts of the world. In this country, it matters too, but we have institutions and frameworks. And it, to some degree, people win elections, one side wins, another side wins, and people basically think that the country still carries on in, in one sense or form. In a lot of parts of the world, you know, if, 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 if the wrong people are in power, that ruins a whole country. And I always had the awareness that politics really mattered. I was never one of those young people that thought, gosh, well, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Uh, so I, that was the biggest thing in my childhood was, was within our family was the sense that you needed to know what was going on in the world. And I used to, to sit and debate with my parents' friends all the time. And I got good at speaking and debating through that because if you're six, seven, eight years old and you've got all the grown-ups around, these are people who are probably then in their late 30s, early 40s, you, you get a word in edgeways, you actually have to have something to say. And so I, I learned that very, very young. And my poor brother, I've got a younger brother and a much younger sister. My poor brother was always sent to sort of look after all the other sort of little children who were ever knocking around. And I insisted on being with the grown-ups, always. From as long as I can remember, I insisted we're sitting with the grown-ups. And my, um, my parents, you know, to their uh, I don't know whether they enjoyed doing this or not, but they did always allow me to. So I learned a huge amount. You know, I used to sit around and we just used to talk all the time, which won't surprise anybody who knows me <laughs> listening to this. But, but, you know, we used to talk all the time about current affairs and stuff. Uh, forgive me, I realise my Nigerian history is pretty patchy, so I'm trying to put what I know of it with the timeline of your parents. But do you think that one of the reasons that sense that politics really matters at home was part of what your dad had experienced in Nigerian oh, yeah, politics? You know, just always, I hear stories of military coups and all this sort of thing. So you know that politics matters and it matters economically. It matters for people's chances. So no, I, I think um, my parents came home in the sort of early mid eighties. So that's the rough time. 
And you describe yourself as a One Nation conservative. Yes. I. It's obviously a phrase that's been around a lot in the last election, and I'm aware that people who listen to The Sacred might be hardcore politics nerds, but also people for whom that phrase doesn't real mean very much. So could you say kind of what you mean by it? Well, the One Nation tendency in the Conservative Party really means two things. It means it's always been the strand that has been more paternalistic within the Conservative Party, the strand that has always tried to make sure at the forefront of the party's thinking is what happens to the most vulnerable and making that the biggest priority in terms of policy and outlook and tone. So that's one thing it means. And the second thing is that absolute commitment to the United Kingdom. So never having any truck with uh, you know, the idea that maybe, whether it be Northern Ireland or Scotland or whatever, you know, maybe that doesn't matter. You know, the, the nation, the United Kingdom being together, being in just an essential part of all of us. So they are the two main strands. And frankly, that's what I perceive it to be. But just to add one more thing, the one nation approach in the modern Conservative Party, I envisage, yes, incorporating those two things, but just as importantly, thinking about how we take the whole country forward in a post-Brexit age. Because one of the things that's disturbed me so much about, I was elected in 2017, so I'm a grand old man of two and a half years in politics, in parliament. But one thing that has really disturbed me in the first couple of years is just how angry and divisive Brexit made, not just Brexit, it made all sorts of other things. And what I think the One Nation group and people within the party who are very keen on it, which is a large number, including the prime minister, is to try and heal that rift so that going forward, you can, we can go forward as one nation. Because you see what happens in certain other countries, what's happening in certain other countries at the moment. And it, you know, there aren't many countries managing it. It's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, now is the challenge for one nation conservatives, which is how do you, at the same time as winning elections, you know, we are politicians, so you've got to win. But at the same time, you've got to win whilst bringing the country together so that when you win, if you win, and you hope to, you, you win and people go, okay, my side didn't win, but I now still feel that togetherness with the person who lives opposite or in my family or next door who voted for the other side. Whereas at the moment, I don't think we're there. And how, do you, how have you experienced that tension yourself, I guess? Because we've I've spoken to lots of people from different parts of um, the political system and we've been trying, we're sort of niggling away at this question of what is driving these divisions? What is amplifying our sense of difference and anxiety? And um, my, my sense is that everyone's just constantly in fight or flight. We're just, you know, there's like a society-wide threat response has been kicked in and is constantly being triggered. And I think part of it is changed in the information environment, which means that our online behaviour is deliberately designed to appeal to the worst parts of us. And that's related to changes in political campaigning. A guy called Michael Weir came on who um, has worked in the White House and he says the hyper-targeting of political messages and the ability to track the data of how people respond means that it's very difficult for politicians not to use those tools if everyone else is using them, even though they might consciously know that the long-term outcome of that is really damaging for people. So if you're happy, I'd love to hear how you've reflected, if you've faced any difficult choices, if you think that there is a kind of like, someone's got to be prepared to lose and to change the, change the environment of, um, of how people are engaging on this, or if it's, it's, you have to do whatever you need to do to get into power, and that's the only time that you actually have any levers at your disposal. 
It's a very complicated question. Forgive me. I'm thinking a lot about this. So I think that's only partly true. So my assessment is that the reason why, not just in this country, but across the Western world, you're getting this, this increasing divisiveness, et cetera, is because the political questions have become less technocratic mm. and more values-based. More ultimate. Exactly. More binary is where we started. It's become more binary. So when I first you know, grew up watching politics and sort of Blair years and that sort of time, so John Major and sort of Tony Blair, yes, you know, Labour were going to either tax us too much or if you're as conservative or if you're Labour, if you're more left-wing, you say, well, no, Labour are going to invest in public services. And these were the sorts of debates you had. Now, we still have them, but the debates were debates across a continuum. And so you can speak to a broader message, any broader set of values, ultimately when, if I disagree with you, it's a longer continuum. The moment that the debate really becomes, are you in favour of Britain or in favour of breaking it up? Or are you in favour of honouring the result of the referendum? Or are you in favour of sort of leaving our closest ally? Or whatever, however you want to do it. Or are you in favour of transgender or not? Are you in favour, you know, these, these questions are binary. And when you have binary questions, yes, social media is a nightmare and social media is a nightmare in all sorts of ways. And everybody, frankly, I think starting to really understand that now. And I'm not entirely sure exactly how you deal with that. There are all sorts of things you can do. I'm not sure how effective they'll be. But I don't think social media actually is the cause. I think it is a tool that has made more efficient and more effective this drive toward what I think is happening anyway. Because when things are values-based, as you even st well, we started this conversation, if, you don't, if I believe you don't believe in gay rights, I can't have a conversation with you. That's it. Mm. So if, you're that, if you're that, I mean, I'm yeah. using that as an example, but my, yeah. my point being, yeah. You, you, there's no midway with that. So what helps us? How do we, uh, as individuals, what are the things that we can do? And as people with public voices, what can we do to um, help break down some of those binaries? I think a large amount of it needs to happen at younger age. I'm a trustee of, as well as at Oxford, I was very involved with the Oxford Union. and I'm a trustee of the Oxford Union Trust, which helps fund the, the union. And I was speaking to the Which, president Just as an elect. aside, is like the definition of binaries, isn't it? That must, it must be one of the things you guys work with. How yeah, do you exactly. maintain that tradition but not let it exactly. be universalised? Exactly. And I was, we had a meeting uh, whenever it was, just to the first week of the general election campaign, actually. And I spoke to the president, the person who was about to become president, whatever, the next term. And we had this very interesting conversation about how there's this whole thing of no platforming now at universities. I mean, I'm 34, as I say. I left university all of 13 years ago. I mean, I'd never even heard of this. I just find this utterly bonkers. But now this is, some, this is somehow like a thing where if you hold views that I don't think are acceptable, and by the way, that person who's making that judgment is never decided democratically. It's sort of a mini hunter who captures whatever organization you're talking about or who pressures academics or the institution. Then you're not allowed to speak. I just found it a profoundly odd way of of conducting one's life at university. But when you have a lot of people who are thinking like that, even at that age, how then as adults do you then say, well, actually now you've got to actually listen to lots of different views and accept that somebody may have a different view of you because nobody's forced them to do that. So I think that we need to quite forcefully, starting at secondary school, really push, or maybe even earlier, 
really push the idea in our education system of there being acceptance of all different sorts of belief. A bit like how now you could never in any school of any type say, I don't like so-and-so because they're Muslim. That would be a sort of really capital offence, right, in a school now. 30 years ago may have been less so, perhaps. But that's capital. Why? Because we just accept now in the modern world that people have a right to either believe in whatever God they want or not believe at all. And that's not controversial saying that right now. 60, 70 years ago, that would have been quite a controversial thing to say in certain quarters. It's not now. So I don't think these things can't change. I, I just think that we need to approach it like that. Mm. Uh, with universities, we need to be much tougher, much tougher and say, you know, and the government frankly funds universities. We've got levers. We should be saying, if that happens at your university, you know, there will be sanctions. And I think we have to be much tougher because if you allow, if you allow our institutions to start to effectively say certain things are not allowed to even be heard, I think you're on a very, very dangerous, slippery slope. I remember many years ago, do you remember when Nick Griffin was on Question Time? Do you remember this? No, look, I'm a black guy. I'm not in favour of the BNP, you know, last time I checked. I thought that was the best antidote to the BNP because he looked ridiculous. He looked utterly ridiculous. His arguments were taken to pieces by the other panellists and the audience. It was, he was a laughingstock. We couldn't have done more to expose how ridiculous and stupid he was and, the, and his ideas, whether they be political or otherwise. Now, we would never have that person on Question Time, would we? Because somebody at the BBC would say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do this. And I don't blame them, by the way, because the, 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 society, the place they operate in, mm. you know, liberal, left, journalist world, would never accept that now, I don't think. Or at least if they did, it would take a brave decision. It would require the BBC really to be brave. Um, so I don't want to, you know, besmirch BBC. Maybe they would be brave. But I think it'd be a much tougher decision now than it was then mm. to do. Let's unpack this a little bit, because it's something that I've really wrestled with. And I've talked to lots of guests about this question of free speech, where are the limits? What, how do we get the balance between a, a, a society where people feel welcome, where they feel included, and where people can say what they think? And we did some research on, um, uh, on university campuses in response to this, and I'll touch about it afterwards. But uh, what we found is there's quite a complicated thing going on whereby 19-year-old students are um, having to make calls on things, um, often under a kind of charitable um, basis, which means they have a, a legal obligation not to put their organisation under reputational risk. So there's lots of governance things going on in the background there. But I think the argument that we heard a lot, and I'm still really not sure what I think about it, is that what you mentioned about no school could have someone who said, I don't like you because you're a Muslim in it, uh, that maybe that came about because the people saying, I don't like you because you're Muslim, there was strong social stigma on them and they stopped saying it. Uh, and so one of the reasons that people aren't given platforms or given legitimacy is exactly because those kind of gains for some groups, for black people, for gay people, for Muslims, certainly feel like they're under threat with particular voices that now because of the way the internet works, might actually find that, you know, coming up behind them, they're, you know, you've kind of amplified their voices. And I just think there is an incredible tension here between our ability to have robust discussion and disagreement in society that we need to protect, but that there are edges which all of us think are unacceptable. So kind of where do you think those are? How do we navigate them well and kindly and intelligently together without it feeling like we're pitting different groups against each other? The, no, I, forget, I forget which philosopher it was, but the basic principle being 
whenever you have a group of people who say, well, we have to police this thing because it's all dangerous. My question always is, who polices you? Who judges the judges? So I, I am, I'm quite strong about this, actually. In my mind, it's quite simple, which probably means I'm probably getting it wrong, which is if there are ideas that are not, that are simply ideas and views that are not inciting any violence or are not calling for any violence, then we should have a strong presumption that that is fine. There are exceptions to every rule, but there should be a strong presumption that is fine. The, the line is violence or uh, something that breaks the law in another way, say discrimination. So if I were to say, for example, someone could say, in, I don't know, in a workplace, gosh, you know, I don't like the Tories. Now, do I think that person should be able to say that? in a workplace, well, yes, as long as it's not inappropriate at the moment they're saying it. But if that person were to say, I don't like Tories and therefore I'm not going to employ anybody who expresses any conservative view or says they're a member of a political part of the conservative party, then that is wrong. Why? Because you're breaking the law. Because you cannot discriminate on the basis of political affiliation, right? So what I mean is that's where you draw the line. That's where you should have a strong presumption. And I think that can be policed quite intelligently in most places, most of the time. We did it before. One of the things that uh, various guests, particularly involved in politics, have spoken about, and it's looping back to your sense of the binaries and the ultimate question, is that there's something about the uh, withdrawal of religion or the reduction in religious practice that has driven politics becoming sites of meaning and belonging and a sense of kind of maybe that utopian impulse has been transferred from the sense mm. that in another life, um, things will be better to right here and now. It can be better. How much, what do you think of that argument? I'm quite persuaded by this, but I've got no evidence and I think it's quite hard. Yeah, it's a hard one to it's, evidence. It's hard to evidence why I am. But going back to what I was saying before, you know, I think human beings, I studied history at university and I still read lots of history. And what's so fascinating about, and I love medieval history, and what's so fascinating about medieval history is Though it's so long ago in societies that just seem so alien in so many different ways, human beings are the same. I mean, the, their impulses, the way they behave, it is so similar. And therefore, if human beings have, and I think there's a lot of evidence for this, most human beings have a yearning for something transcendental, something that makes their existence have meaning beyond the immediate self. If you no longer have that in religion for whatever reason, and that's for all sorts of other reasons, then logic would suggest and history would suggest that you're going to have to find that in some other way. Or if you don't, you end up with some sort of social or mental crisis because the essence of sort of what am I here for? What, what are we all doing? What's my purpose? Why, why, are we, why are we bothering? And that essential question is one that has always been at the heart of human existence. So. I think everybody needs to find their own answer for that. But if, if fewer and fewer people are finding that in religion, then I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that more and more people, by no means all, in fact, I don't even think it's a majority, but more and more people are finding that in, in political ideas, not so much political parties, interestingly, mm. but political ideas or weirdly individual politicians, which I find sort of creepier, but it, but it is increasingly the case. Mm. 
or even like of, individual thinkers or yeah. writers or you know someone who someone who whose ideas you can get on board with and align yourself with so something very odd so i'm very interested in climate change and how we how we deal with all that from a political perspective and i've done a lot of thinking about it and i held a climate change conference in my constituency in september gosh september seems like a very long time ago and Somebody, you had all sorts of people, both people locally. I had, it was chaired by Baroness Brown, who's the vice chair of the Committee on Climate Change. We had all sorts of people, some local constituents, some from across the country. And somebody came, I can't remember who it was, but they came and they had a picture in a bag, I thought. It was clearly a picture. So gosh, what's that? And it was a picture of Greta Thunberg. And he said to me, can I bring it and put it on the stage? And I was completely gobsmacked. And I said, no, because... I didn't really think about it. I just thought this is very odd. So, so I just said no. And, you know, he sort of put it away and carried on. I don't know if I told anybody about it, but I just thought that was remarkably weird. Mm. And this was a conference on climate change, you know, policy-based, you know, people talk about nature and biodiversity and the economics and all these, mm. it was quite practical stuff. And this guy had brought this picture of Greta Thunberg. It was a big thing as well. You know, I'm not talking about a little thumbnail. I mean, this thing was big. You know, you could tell it was a picture. And that told me that this particular individual had obviously invested something that goes beyond the political in a symbol of this issue mm. that he obviously cares very strongly about because guess what? It's a climate change conference. So people who turn up are quite keen on the idea. Probably should care. Yeah. But, but it was, I'd never seen anything like that for somebody who is an activist. I just thought that was extraordinary. A bit like we're getting, um, I sometimes think of them as sort of secular saints whether it's Jordan Peterson or Greta Thunberg. And what I've been thinking about recently is the pressure of that on the individual. You know, I think a lot about people with public voices and their character and how they kind of carry the responsibility of the, of the duty to be someone who forms people's ideas and forms people's character. You know, the news has come out recently that Jordan Peterson has this terrible addiction problems, which is absolutely tragic, incredible medical problems. And I worry for Greta Thunberg. I think this, you know, this spotlight on you cannot help but be psychologically incredibly difficult to bear. All of which is just sort of, just to kind of state, but also to say, as, and I ask this of a lot of people, as someone who has a public voice, who hopes to continue to have a public voice, kind of what are your practices or disciplines or ways of thinking about how you use it? And I don't really like the phrase self-care, but, you know, ways you look after yourself and your character and, um, and kind of guard that role. Gosh, well, it's all right. I don't think I've quite reached the stage of secular state. No. So I'm okay for a while. Um, I think that you always have to know why you're doing something. I used to work in the city. I left university because, I mean, what else was I going to do? I had to do something. And I actually quite enjoyed it. I really liked the people I worked with. I, they were really professional, really smart. And um, I respected a lot of the people I was with. And... After a period of time, however, you just couldn't really be bothered. So when you were asked to do something, and I was being paid sort of you know, ungodly amounts of money to do various things, whether it be as a corporate lawyer and then in strategy and banking and all the rest of it. But the small things you couldn't be bothered to do after a while. And you realize after a while, and you sort of really force yourself for a while, but then you just realize you just don't really want to do it. Now, I knew I wanted to be in politics, but thing in politics, you don't get to choose. You know, politics slightly chooses you. and Takes you know, some time. There's, 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 you know, local party politics and all the rest of it. So it's not something you could just decide to go and do. And I was very lucky. The 2017 election came at a particular juncture and various things happened. 
But my point is that I don't really feel a sense of, I don't feel too angst ridden, weirdly, because I know what I want to do and I know why I'm in politics and therefore I can sort of deal with it. I think that the difficulty, however, is if I get to a point, and in politics, at some point, this always happens to somebody, where they have to do something, or rather they perceive or feel that they have to do something that they don't really want to do in a quite a fundamental way. That is where I think difficulties come. Now, look, I, 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 I'm not in that situation, so I can't now say, oh, I'd find it easy. What I'm saying is that the core of why you're doing what you're doing and knowing that your relationships that you have are not dependent on that thing are really important to me. So it was actually my, whenever the, I don't know when this is going out, but my uh, birthday yesterday, uh, two days ago, and I had birthday dinner. And the people at that birthday dinner, 90 plus percent of them would have been at my birthday 13, 14 years ago. The fact that I'm in politics and whatever, it hasn't really, you know, it doesn't affect how I think about my own relationships or now am I, you know, it's fine. I go to some, I, I do certain things I didn't do before. And of course, there are all sorts of social things you go to and various other things. But fundamentally, I'm still the same person with the same friends. You speak to anybody who knows me, they'll say I'm literally the same person because I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think where it's difficult, and you see this a lot in politics, are people who the thing they, the only thing they live for in and of itself is the politics. And therefore, you don't really have a self outside the politics and not to have a self outside the politics can be very damaging psychologically because at some point, as night follows day, politics always at some point will end in failure. Some failures are glorious, some are most are inglorious, but at some point in politics, it ends in failure and you are not going to be a politician forever. So you need to always think, what is yourself and what are you here for and what do you want to say and what do you want to prove and what do you want to achieve? All of those things need to be outside that sphere and in your core, because without that, ultimately it'd end up terribly empty. And what I find lots of politicians, a lot of whom quite able, just find it difficult to almost know what to do when they're there, because actually making a decision on what to do in a political office is actually more values driven than people realize. Do you fund nurseries more than, I don't know, uh, tax credits for, tax married, credits families. for married families? Or do you spend more on international development or more on the education system? These are actually value questions that are dressed up in practical political terms. So unless you know what you really are in politics for, you're probably going to find those questions really wearing and really difficult because, you know, and the one thing that actually this prime minister uh, has shown, and this isn't a party political point, but I just think analytically has shown, is that when the public gets a sense of what you are there and what you are trying to do, and you make that very, very clear, some people like it, some people don't like it, that has a real credibility with people. When you're really fundamentally clear through your actions and your words, what you are trying to do, that gives you, that enables you to ride through all sorts of difficulties in politics. I'm going to end with a question that um, I ask a lot of people, which is about what have they learned about engaging across difference? And I think most people's perception of politicians is they might not be that good at that because they it's a very adversarial system. But my sense is that within parties, in constituencies, there's a huge amount about movement building and finding collaboration and finding compromise. So you had one piece of advice for people for how in a divided society we work with people, 
live with people, you know, build society with people who don't agree with us, what would it be? Start with what you agree on. Always start with what you agree on. And I have never, it never ceases to amaze me how you often just think you disagree with someone on absolutely everything. And you'll find you agree on something small. And the small thing then leads to something slightly bigger and slightly bigger and slightly bigger. And you actually realise you agree on way more than you, you realise. Whether it's parenting or a football team or... It's you know. amazing. I find that always eternally. The, the only thing I'd like to say, which I meant to say earlier, was one of the words that I think is underused in modern politics and theology and philosophy, and I don't know why, but maybe it's because I'm obsessed with it and nobody else is, is the word praxis. Because ideas into action, I just think, is the most fundamental thing in politics. Uh, and I'm all, I've always, and I learned this when I studied theology at A-Level, I had this wonderful teacher called Michael Wilcoxon, just a wonderful man, just the most, such a gifted um, theo theologian, theology teacher. I just enjoyed his, his lessons so much. And that idea of praxis in politics, I always think about is, You've got this idea, you've got this thing, how do you put that into action? And I've been quite interested to read some of the stuff that Pope Francis has done and how that clearly is a big strain in his thought and, and thinking and, and, and taking it out of the liberation theology context, but putting that into a political context, I think could be very powerful. Bim Afalami, thank you so much for talking to me. Not at all, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.